0: Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 106 of Control the Controllables. Today we have a young coach, but a coach that's already achieved so much in his career.
1: You know, we're, we're in such a, a big position to, to make kids love the game and want them to stay in it. And I think now... A lot of kids, you know, at 13, 14, if they're not, you know, some of the best players in Europe or in the world, they almost just think, well, what's the point? I think it's yeah. it's happening more and more. And yeah, I think as coaches, it's our job to to really keep encouraging them and showing them how tennis is just so amazing for their life. You know, my, my life is everything because of tennis. You know, everything that
0: I do yeah. now is because is of tennis. And that was Craig Veal. Craig Veal, aged 30, has already achieved lots in the game and only a few years ago he was coaching Mini Tennis Red. He really has made his way through all of the different steps in coaching. And he's currently coaching Alexi Guarachi, who who has just this weekend won the, the one hundred thousand WTA event in Dubai. At the time of this conversation that hadn't happened. But just listening to Craig and his humility in how he talks about the coaching journey, it's no surprise to see that he's having a big impact at that level of the game. He's also been through the journey with Emil Hud, Arthur Ferry, who, who are some of the young British players that you might have come across. He really is a good person to learn from. It's a great story. It's a very achievable story. And I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So sit back wherever you are, if you're in the car, if you're listening to this in your garden, if you're doing the hoovering, like I know that somebody told me the other day, whatever you're doing, have a great day and enjoy the show. So Craig Veal, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all good, Dan. Thanks. How are you? I'm better than you by the look of it. Sat in your car. <laughs> is this is this the life of a tennis coach? Is it re- reduced to sitting in a car park?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is uh this is the life of a, a young dad, uh, with a little boy at home who's teething and starting to walk. So uh this is my
0: quiet space. <laughs> so so listeners, this is dedication for you guys. This is, you know, Craig. Or <laughs> or oh, oh, he's just got an excuse to get away from the young teething 14 month year old. I'm not <laughs> sure which one it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Craig, so, I mean, as as you've heard with the podcast, I think, you know, there's there's going to be some great subjects to get into here with you. But I, I do like to have the context of where your tennis journey started. You know, obviously someone who's very passionate about the sport. So take us back all those years to where it began for you. Uh,
1: yeah, so tennis for me, uh, it started on a, on a wall on the side of my parents' house. We lived on the end house of a long terrace housing row, and yeah, it was just me bashing a bashing an old battered up tennis ball against the wall when I was about seven. We went to uh, it would have been a, a sporter a club at the time, and uh, I went on had a had a little trial and decided it was the, the worst thing ever, and it was the worst experience. You know, some bloke just shouting at me, telling me what to do, basically for an hour. Uh, that was my idea of not much fun really. So yeah. uh, I I didn't really play. Um, didn't really play much. I still was doing it against the wall, but didn't go to any clubs or anything. And then I was on holiday in the in the US when I was about eight or nine, and went and took a tennis lesson over there and had the most enthusiastic guy ever, who made me just fall in love with it. And he said to my parents, "Yeah, when, when you get back home, you know, try and find a club somewhere for him." And uh, yeah, that
0: was what that was what they did. But doesn't it just show, and it's something I preach on here actually. Around, I believe that people kids buy into a person, not necessarily a sport, or they buy into an experience, you know, not necessarily a sport. And isn't that like, imagine if you had maybe gone back to that club for your second experience, had the same again, never then picked up a racket, how different your life would be.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, my, my experience when I came back home, actually it was Chris Wilkinson's dad was my first tennis, was my first tennis coach. And he operated out of a little four court um, outdoor club that was owned by the council, basically just council courts. And he used to operate a a kind of club there. And I remember going along and it was on a Saturday morning. And there must have been 60, 70 kids across these four courts, tennis rounders, tennis cricket, round the world, just utter chaos. and, And
0: I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Great. And yeah, that got me into it. <laughs> Great. And, and what about your parents? Were they sporty? Were they Tennessee? Were they? Um,
1: my mum, not, not really. But my, my dad was a very, very good marathon runner. Um, he was sort of doing two hours 30 sub for marathons. So cool. pretty sharp. And my sister played basketball. And basketball was actually my first sport for most of my life. Yeah, I played a lot of basketball and point guard. Uh,
0: yeah. Point guard. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously, point guard, and uh, yeah, that was uh, that that was our sport in our family.
0: And and in terms of, I don't know a whole lot about your playing career. I obviously I know you as as the coach. I know that you played tennis to a, a level that you at least played an ITF Futures or two. So so tell us a little bit more about you about your playing.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually. Got reasonably good quite quick when I was young. I ended up uh, playing at least like a Robinson Aces tour, sort of. I think it was like under 10 or maybe under 12. I can't remember the exact age. Um, and I made, I made like the last four of that when I was about 10 or 11, playing some pretty good players in that. And then I actually stopped when I was 12 for two years. Just You know, fell out of love with tennis, started finding find it a bit boring. I was playing a lot of basketball and that was way more exciting. The people around me yeah. were, yeah, just way more fun. And then I got back into it at 14 and, yeah, just fell completely back in love with it again and played, yeah, played like the usual British stuff, British tours, played nationals, a junior. Yeah, played futures, qualies, and that was actually the, the, the moment where I decided that it was probably time to stop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, I, I did have a little look, Craig. I saw that in Jersey 2006, you did win your first round match but you managed yeah. to have a, a different form of transport on the way back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, I rode the bicycle on the second one. Um, that was actually the, the the moment for me where, you know, I played a guy, he was like, he was like 900. You know, he, he was a, a good tennis player, but by no yeah. means, you know, yeah. a, anything really in the world of tennis. And uh, I, just, I just couldn't believe how far away I was. And I, I'd already kind of had some thoughts about wanting to, to maybe not play as much. And I'd started doing a little bit of assistant coaching and, yeah, that kind of sealed the deal for me. I think I played one or two more tournaments after that, and then yeah, started coaching.
0: And how old were you then? Uh, Seventeen. And was US college not anything that was on the on the cards for you at that um, time? i I'd, I'd been to the US a little
1: bit playing basketball, spent some time out there, but I didn't really want to play anymore. You know, I'd kind of I'd fallen out of love with the, with the playing part of it, but I'd always taken a bit of an interest in coaching. When I was much younger, I used to help out doing a bit of assistant coaching of basketball when I was like 14, you know, 13, 14, helping the younger yeah. kids. It's something I've always quite enjoyed. Uh, and I was in, I was at the program in Sutton that Nick Wheel actually used to run. And at that time, there was so much opportunity to, to coach there in terms of going into schools, doing the tots tennis. And yeah, I kind of finished my last year of A-levels whilst working full time. So I was kind of doing A-levels in the day and then working sort of 4 till 10 every night at the academy and yeah i just just loved it it's
0: it hits me how stop starty your tennis was mm-hmm. you know and I, for those who craig coaches be careful cuz you could be jumping up, jumping ship any moment <laughs> but <laughs> if that's continued but no I, that that that's very clear that you're not like that you you don't have that as a tennis coach but i guess it brings me to almost like a bigger point that's not abnormal. I don't think your journey's abnormal, you know, for kids to, mm-hmm. to start play a bit, maybe, maybe not. So how, how do we get kids to have the bug that, that almost keeps them going over and don't, don't get bored and, you know, can see it as almost, yeah, not a means to an end, but they can see it as part of their life. They can see it as enhancing their life.
1: Yeah, I mean for me it's, it's just it's just all about the people that, that, that were that was around me you know when I was when I stopped playing when I was kind of 12 13 all of a sudden just became so serious you know I'd, I'd had a couple of, I'd done it okay you know as a
0: yeah.
1: 11 12 year old and all of a sudden you know they're telling me I've got to play you know five nights a week and you know it, I think it's the people really uh, I yeah. think as coaches you know we're, we're in such a, a big position to to make kids love the game and want them to stay in it and I think now a lot of kids you know at 13 14 if they're not you know some of the best players in Europe or in the world they almost just think well what's the point point? and I, I, I really get that feeling more, more and more at the moment I think it's yeah. it's happening more and more and yeah I think as coaches it's our job to to really keep encouraging them and showing them how tennis is just so amazing for their life you know my, my life is everything because of tennis you know, everything that I do yeah. now is, is because of tennis
0: yeah, no, absolutely. And and I always think as a coach, the number one goal as a coach is to have players still playing the game at 18. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that is a success measure, you know, and, and, and I think we can get a little bit you know, carried away, and obviously you're working to a very high level with some very good players. But as people are going to hear from your story, it's not always been the case, and and no. it might and it might not be the case in a few years' time. You know, and you know, at the, at the end of the day, you're a tennis man who wants to help people in in the world of tennis. Is there? is that down to uh, competition structure? Because I always, I always look as well. And, and obviously I've been out of the UK for 11 years now. And, and, and we've talked a lot about competition structure on the podcast, but sometimes I think people think that we're talking about competition at a higher level. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually what does the kid at the club who plays twice a week do on a weekend to have competition, yes. to have a purpose to then want to go back to, to practice their forehand cross court or to practice coming to the net because competition on Saturday, that kind of was shown up that they weren't comfortable enough doing that.
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think it's a huge part of it. You know, I'm, we're very lucky where, where, where I live that we have a great tennis club near us, uh, Sutton tennis and squash club. I think you've probably been there for yes. some of the British tours and events and you know, all of the boys have either played there or at another club locally, no matter what kind of level they, that they get to. You know, someone like Arthur Ferry, for example, you know, he was he was still played club matches for West for his local club Westside until he was kind of 16. And then they yeah. said to him, look, our club teams aren't strong enough anymore. Go and find a one that's got a bit better, you know, a better level that you can play in. Another lad that I coached, Emil Hud, who's in the States at uh, Oklahoma State every summer he comes back for, for national club league. He loves it. You know, he, yeah, yeah. he's totally ingrained in the culture of the club league at, at the club. And, you know, that, that, that was what I grew up on. You listen to whenever I was on the podcast, he talked about playing, you know, Sunday league, you know, you know, Warwickshire league or whatever it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think those things are, are great because it teaches kids social skills. They have to you know, integrate yep. with adults um, it shows them that they can still play at a good level, even if you know they don't decide to be a pro tennis player or whatever. You know they can still play afterwards if in a regular
0: job. Yeah, I think it's it's so important.
1: It's it's really crucial.
0: And what you've just described there is this whole this whole thing of being part of a tribe, mm-hmm. you know, which which is what I guess people buy into in life. They like to be part of it, and that certainly seems to be something that they do very well in countries like France, Italy, Germany, you know, they have, you know, you become a a big, a big member of the club. Is that something that you've experienced as a player or coach? Yeah, definitely. Um,
1: Up until probably two years ago, I I still played, you know, men's third team or whatever, you know, at my my local club, you know, on a Sunday, if they, I get a phone call on a Saturday night, someone's pulled out, can you come and play? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd jump in and play a bit and, yeah, I think it's so important to feel connected to something. It's yeah. it's really important to feel connected to something, and I think we'll get onto it later, like my coaching journey. But when in the years that I was at Sutton, it, it was like a huge family I was a part of there, and you know the, the the culture that we had there, it was it was amazing for the seven or eight years that I was there. I I, I loved it.
0: And what do you put that down to? Because again, culture, it's a bit of a buzzword. It's certainly something. I feel I try very hard at Soto to, to bring through, but it can be fluffy. It can be a fluffy yeah. word as well. You've, you've experienced what you call a good culture. Why, what, what was it that made that culture so good? For me, it was something that, that, you know,
1: I bought into the, you know, I think sometimes we get really caught up in, in trying to, when you build a culture, you want to have all these acronyms and all these amazing things that, that sound yeah. really good, but, yeah. but actually it's, it's kind of irrelevant, you know, you, you only need one or two things that people really buy into and people really want to happen mm. to, to make something work. You know, we, we had that at, at, when I was at Sutton, you know, our aim was to try and become, you know, an, an independent Academy with, with players coming from all over the world really. And, and yeah, and, and we, and we achieved that by the time we were kind of finishing up there and we were all working towards
0: that. And that was what we believed in. I'm going to jump back into that, especially when you talk about, all of these different players from different parts of the world, because I know that that's, that's an important part of what you do and, you know, working, working with players from different nationalities, but I want us to get there first. So if I take you, if I take you back to you starting to coach age 17, 18, you're still a relatively young guy. I don't know your exact age, but I know you're quite (laughs) significantly younger than me. How did the coaching bit start?
1: Basically, uh, I'm originally from Southampton, and I was living in Sutton. And I was coming towards the end of the, the two years that I that I had on. It was like the scholarship program it used to be called. You did your two years of A levels there, and I was getting towards the end of that. And I wanted to stay there. Essentially, I, I wanted to stay living living in Sutton. And I had a girlfriend who is now my wife. Uh, it's and, always an ulterior border. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the, the the chat was from my parents. Basically, well, if you want to stay up there, you got to you got to pay for it. So yeah got got a job, started working um I think at the time it was it was seven pounds an hour. I had my level two, so it was it was like seven quid an hour, and yeah just just bash out as as many hours as as you could you know I was working seven days you know four till ten four till ten every night, and then six, seven hours on a Saturday, six, seven hours on a Sunday, and doing everything, going into schools, um tots tennis uh mini reds uh i used to hit with an italian um broker from the city every single night of the week for an hour and a half 8 30 till 10 just doing everything
0: so we had a uh, we had tom hill we had tom hill on the on the show a couple of weeks ago when he talked about his opportunity came when he was on a night out in san diego <laughs> And now you're telling me that your opportunity came because you were trying, you were trying to just find a way to spend some time with your girlfriend. So these are not the messages that I'd planned on bringing through <laughs> in, 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 in the in the podcast. But but no, Craig. I mean, where, where I think that's and why I was so desperate to get you on the on the show. One, you you still are this very humble guy who as coach players into a grand slam final, but you would never, you would never act in any different, you know, and, and two, your journey started at mini tennis and tots. And I think it's almost quite an abnormal journey, but I think it's, a, it's important for people to see that journey that in this sport, you can go through the levels and and go up, down, 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 up, 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 down, and, and, and spread yourself across there, doing a very good job at all of them. So tell us how you ended up coaching three and four-year-olds on the court, probably how to play some kind of pancake game. To, yeah to to then finding yourself in a Grand Slam final coaching girls back in 2020. I guess that's a 10-year journey, roughly.
1: Yeah, 12, uh yeah, almost 13 years. Almost 13 years. So, yeah, I kind of was doing the, the, the top stuff and the mini red. And at and Sutton and at the time, there was, a, there was a junior academy in the evening for kind of regional level players um, who were sort of 10 to about 14, 15. And the guys just said to me one, you know, a couple of times, oh, can you come over and just assist on those squads? You know, at that time, at that time, um, at that time I, I was still, you know, just finished playing. So I could hit, you know, I was hitting still to an okay level. So, you know, I'd jump in and, and hit with them and help out. And then really for me, it started in 2010 and I started coaching a young lad, um, I mentioned him already, called Emil Hud and he was nine, just turning 10 when I started coaching him. So he was, you know, finishing orange ball, you know, moving into green and I started just to spend a lot of time with him, started to, to coach him individually a lot alongside other coaches that were also working with him. And I kind of just went on this crazy journey with him, really, from, from kind of green ball all the way through to him ended up playing junior Wimbledon, uh, junior Aussie qualies. Yeah. And and that was kind of how it went for me. Um, I, I coached all sorts of different kids at the academy. It was the, the juniors, uh, some of the senior guys, you know, some of the senior guys I was, I was on court with were actually older than me. I was Good. 22, 23 working with players that were older than me. I became the traveling coach for the Academy essentially. So I actually took my first trip away when I was 20 on my own and I took three 10 year old boys to brush as a 20 year old. Wow. Um, and yeah, that was pretty daunting actually. Yeah. Uh, and looking back on that now, I mean, I, I can't imagine doing that with my own son, sending him with some 20 year old, uh, <laughs> when he's 10. So, so yeah, so I, I kind of went on this journey with, with a meal. We traveled to everything, tennis, Europe, ITF futures, and then behind him, a couple of years later, was Arthur Ferry. Um, so I was kind of dovetailing between the two of the two of them. And I and I left the academy in 2015 and just went independent, doing my own thing. Still based out of the academy, but doing my own thing, and just working with those two lads, really. Yeah, and that was that was kind of how it ended up for me there.
0: So if you're if you were to give, and I don't really like the question, given advice, but it's, it, it, you're going to give lots of advice in this podcast anyway, but if you were to give a young coach advice who wants to end up coaching at the higher level of the game, but their starting point isn't that they've got a name as a player. Their mm-hmm. starting point is that they're going in and they're working absolutely a grassroots level. What would you what would your key advices be? You've
1: got to go through the levels. I think that's one thing that definitely i notice is that a lot of coaches are so impatient you know you've, you've got to you know for, for me it was taking a kid from you know sponge ball could i get them onto a county talent id program yeah and then from from this from that could i get them onto a regional you know regional program as an orange ball player yep. and then can they get to playing grade twos and green ball and then you know i was fortunate you know i know for a lot of coaches it's not the case you know these players uh, you not not ta- i hate the word taken from them because you know play it, coaches don't own players, um, but players move on. And I think what often happens is, you know, and I've seen this recently with a friend of mine, coaches get so disheartened by it that they end up just going, do you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'm going to just stay in my club, coach my mini reds, earn some good money and that'll do. So I think you just got to try and stick with it. You got to stick with it. You got to keep trying to progress through those levels. You know, then can you get a 10 year old, 11 year old playing local grade fours and, you know, winning some matches and just keep going from over and over again, you know, it's kind of you know lather, rinse, repeat. Really, <laughs> just keep going through the levels. Yeah. But it's my, my journey. I would say has been relatively quick. I've had a pretty quick journey to yeah. to working at, at, with the guys that I work with currently, and that's 13 years. Yeah. And I and, and I would say it's been super quick to get there. I, I if you had said to me 13 years ago, are we doing what I'm doing now? I never would have never would have said that.
0: It's a great answer. So I think
1: I think you've got to be patient and and also understand what what is involved you know when I was 25 and I made the decision to leave the academy that was completely you know m- my decision and it was a risk that I took because I was in an employed position at an academy and I just went almost one-on-one with one one 15 year old lad mm. and they were paying me privately there was no guarantees of anything and I just took a punt you know this was a this was a kid that I'd coached for six years I had a lot of belief in him built a great relationship with him and his family and yeah you, you've got to take some risks as well, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah. well, there's, there's so many things that you've said in that, but it, it, for me, it's it, a coaching journey is not too different to a player's journey. Yeah. And I guess, you, you you know, as a player, you set about starting as a player and not everyone has the aspiration to play at grand slams. And mm-hmm. some people are very happy to, to play to a certain level and, you know, and that's absolutely fine. And I think it's the same with coaches. Some people want to excel at uh, being a, the best mini tennis coach in the world, and there's some amazing, you know, amazing coaches there. So it's not assuming that everyone wants to go on that journey. Yeah, but I, but I do think a, a bear bug of mine is there's people that want to be in the position you're currently in, mm-hmm. but they're not willing to go through the levels. Yeah, they they're they're hoping. <laughs> That all of a sudden someone's just going to take a random chance on them, <laughs> yeah. You know, with, without putting the work in, and and I and I would say it's so true. that, the, you know, as a player, more, the player's journey they get they get to a certain level and they tend to plateau a little bit, and then they work yeah. a little bit harder. And then they get up a little bit again and then they plateau a little bit and it's a bit messy. And then, you know, they do it again. And and I think you've put that so nicely that that's a coach's journey. And I think it's a great message for any coaches listening to. And I think you're a great example of that, Craig, as well.
1: Yes, I I think for me, it's, you know, if you I think if you've been a very high level player, there is a you know, you have an advantage. But at the end of the day, I think you've earned that advantage in some ways, because yeah. at some point you've put the work into play at that level. Yeah. So, you know, you get rewarded for that. You know, ultimately, I could have maybe st- stuck at tennis for another three or four years or gone to college, come out, yeah. made maybe, you know, nine hundred or a thousand or whatever. And yeah, I would have maybe jumped in at a higher level than what I started. Yeah. But I'd put the work in at some, you know, it doesn't just happen. You put the work in at some stage. Whereas for me, it was it was a complete obsession from almost starting out to where I'm now. And even now, it is still an obsession. Yeah. It's, you know, you you miss a lot of stuff. You know, I miss a lot of birthdays, a lot of time away from, from your partner, a lot of time away from your family. But the reality is that that, that is just the job, isn't it? You know, you know that. I think
0: okay. a lot of people do. That's the job. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And you talked as well there about when players are taking from the, the, the coach or yeah. exact, exactly moved on or whatever the situation is. Again, that's a whole topic and a an emotive topic in, in itself yeah. with, with some people. But I always think this, so I'm having this with, with Evan Hoyt right now. Evan was 300 in the world, got injured. His ranking will drop, but he knows that he's levels 300. You know, it might take a little bit of time but mm-hmm. you can get to that level you know in your mind you know that that's the level and i think it's the same as a coach if you if you've worked with a player up to playing tennis europe events and that player moves into a different setup it's much easier now to start working with another player at, at yeah. that level of tennis europe so anyone that is thinking that that's kind of lost investment and what you've basically described is it, you do get the return on investment in this sport you know but you have to invest you have to yeah, invest in it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, you, you, if you do the right things by the players that you coach and, and the kids that you're involved with, then then good things will happen. Um, you know, I, I I genuinely believe that all the stuff that I've done with, with the kids that I've coached has always been in their best interest. There, there's been players that I've coached that I've said to you, actually, I don't think I'm the person that, that should be coaching you anymore. I, I can't provide you what you need. You know, I, I'm more than happy to help you find someone who can do that for you. And I think as long as you, as long as you do that, then yeah, good, good things will happen. You know? good, good things will happen.
0: Can you give us without using names? Can you give us an example of that? Because I think that's a one that we all like to think we do that. And, and I've, I've got a couple of examples of doing that as well, but I think not many do. Yeah. Well, I, I can give you an
1: example where, and I'm sure here we find it. So, so Arthur Ferry, who I still work with now in 2018, um, I was coming to the end of my time with Emil and yep. there was this potential for me to start working with with another player and I knew that I knew that I could still work with Arthur whilst doing that and I kind of spoke to him and his parents and I said look I don't think I'm the person who should be leading this anymore because there's the possibility that I might because there was, was an opportunity to work with a, a senior player I said there's an opportunity I have here I don't want to kind of string you along until until the last yep. minute and then and then say see you later but we were working with another French guy at the same time, you know, we, we were both coaching Arthur and I said, that he's the guy that should be leading this now, not me. You know, yeah. I, I need, I need to step, step back a bit. And, you know, if you want me to still be involved then then great. But if you don't, it's not a problem. You know, I've, I've coached yeah. him for five years already, you know, great relationship. And, and that came back good for me because actually they said, no, we still want you to be involved in some way. Um, you know, Benoit is going to be the guy to, to lead it moving forwards, but we still yeah. want you involved. We still want your help. And yeah. And, um, you know, whereas I think if I would have had that conversation later down the line and said, oh, I'm actually just going to go now. You know, I've already got this other work secure. I'm going to go now. See you later. I think it would have
0: yeah, not gone the way it has. Yeah. Honest, honesty is the best policy, isn't it? And and, I think, yeah. and, and and again, that bit of advice for for coaches out there and for parents and for players, you know, and it's something that I would try and push all the time is have that honest, difficult conversation or what you think is the difficult conversation because then you get to context and you get get to layers of the conversation and layers of the understanding. And I I think there's so much assumption happens. Yeah, They they assume that the coach is thinking this. They assume that the parent is thinking that. They assume that the player is thinking that. And actually people end up not communicating and it it all goes tits up.
1: Oh, definitely. I think that that's um, that's something that I, I've got better at over the last probably five or six years. Is not assuming things as much now from the from the parents' side of things. You know, I used yeah. to make a lot of assumptions about parents, and then you know I've been fortunate that I, I work with a lot of great great kids, great families, and now it's so much easier. Well, as soon as you remove those assumptions and you just have the conversation. Yeah. One, you build a better relationship with the family. Yeah. And the second thing is you actually often go in the direction you want to be going.
0: So, yeah. yeah. So tell us where, in terms of your current situation, you mentioned you're still working with Arthur. Who are you coaching? What's your current situation as a coach?
1: Yeah, so uh, I currently work with uh, Chilean, sorry, doubles player, Alexa Garacci. I started with her in 2018, and yeah, we've kind of been yeah, working together ever since, really. She lost yesterday in the third round of Aussie Open doubles, so working with her. Then a Japanese player who is actually, she's British, she's lived in Britain for most of her life, uh, called Lily Miyazaki, and she's over in Germany at the moment playing a 25K. And then myself and another coach, uh, Shaw Malcolm, we recently started a program in Sutton, trying to support you know, 14 plus players and give them somewhere to, to train. Because at the moment in the Southeast, if you're over the age of 14, there's there's not an awful lot available to you yeah. <laughs> unless you're uh, a national age group player. So yeah, we're trying to support some of these guys. That would have been like me yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and we're trying to keep them playing and keep them in the game.
0: Very good. And what about Arthur?
1: Arthur's in Egypt at the moment. This is likely to be his last uh, event before he heads to Stanford. Yeah. He's due to go at the end of the month covid dependent so uh,
0: yeah that's that's where he is so how and, and how do you find coaching actually let's go back a step how do you come about coaching a girl from chile <laughs> uh so yeah
1: it was uh, wimbledon 2018 and my former boss at sutton uh he moved back to new zealand and he was the fed cup captain uh, for New Zealand and and he said to me, Look, I've got a I've got a girl playing in the qualities of the doubles there. I've not really seen her much. We're looking at maybe her playing some Fed Cup. Can you just go and have a watch and just and just let me know how she, how she is and how she plays. And so I went along, uh took my notebook like I like I always do for every match. Um yeah, made some made some notes and some some match charting and I just fed it back to to Neil, her coach and he said to me, she said to me, look, you know, can you feed that back to the girls and it, it might help them out. The girls ended up qualifying, and they played Krajcikova and Sinia Kova in the first round at Wimbledon. And they actually led a break in the third set, and and had a, and had an opportunity to, to to win that match, I think. And these were two girls that had, you know, not long been out of college, um, were kind of ranked, you know, 120, 130 in the world, and yeah, they liked what I did. The, the Alexa ended up saying to me, look, really, really like the way you work. If there's any possibility for us to do some stuff together, then let's give it a go.
0: Opportunist. Well done. Huh? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's
1: uh, yeah. It's again, I, I just think, you know, it, it, even if it wasn't the intention of that to happen, the intention for me was just to speak to speak to Neil, feedback to him and say, look, this is the this is the girl. And there you go. Here's the feedback. And he says to me, well, can you just give it to them directly?
0: And yeah, it, it went from there people will always recognize good work you know and if at the end of the day you know and if you, you keep you you keep being true to yourself and you've said it earlier be true to yourself bring your best every single day no matter which player you're working with and 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 people will absolutely recognize that you know and i think you're your testament to that in terms of one thing that again looking from afar cuz i know you've worked with a couple of girls from different nationalities What's the differences then between working with somebody from Chile compared to a British player? I know Arthur's very French and got the, got the mm-hmm. French influence. And is a dad. Do you do you notice differences in in the in the way that you have to work as a coach with them? I mean Arthur, they're all just
1: different. I I I, I don't think it's an it's a nationality thing. I I, I really yeah. don't. Yeah. Um, I just think you've got to look at the individual in front of you and, and yeah. work out what's going to work best for them. All three of those players are, are completely different people yeah. and what they respond to and what they need is, is totally different. So I think there are general trends sometimes you know you look at the French very flary and 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 things like that you know I think Brits often you know can be described as a bit mechanical you know ball you know ball strikers hitters and stuff like that but there's plenty of kids in British tennis as well that have got a lot of flair and a lot of game but they're often but they're often the ones that come through a little bit later and they're often the ones that maybe aren't so big and don't get results when they're 11 12 13 but yeah a lot of them just run out of opportunity I think um, there, there, there's a
0: lot of kids out there with a lot of skill and a lot of ability. You have touched on that now a couple of times, which has opened me to push you and push this door <laughs> open. Okay. It's, it's very clear that you feel there's not enough opportunities in the UK for for players 13, 14 onwards.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just for for me, I, it, it's changed a lot over the over the last. 10 15 years um if i think when i when i was growing up you went down to nationals at bournemouth you know 16s nationals and every single player was there my years uh evo and cox and those guys you know and every single player would be there playing it now you go to 16s nationals you'll be lucky you'll be lucky if you get five of the top eight players there you know you'll be lucky to get that yeah. uh, i think the culture has just become so much about getting your tennis europe ranking as high as possible as quickly as possible then the same for your itf and i think the ltf made a really good move in bringing this wild card thing for for the under 18 nationals um now i think that, that that's a really good incentive to get some of these kids playing it more but i just think players are afraid to play each other over here a little bit and i think that that comes from the fact that you know and you i think you touched on this point in your bisham days you can you can start to feel a lot of pressure you know you've now got kids that are being funded you know from a very young age and receiving quite substantial sums of funding. and then you've got the kids that don't receive it. And yeah. all of a sudden, once those kids leave it because I've got that with a kid at the moment, he's just left being a regional player as a 14 year old. Now as a fifteen year old, he's not a regional, he's no longer a regional player. All of a sudden he's freaking out about playing against kids that before th- they were never funded. so now he's freaking out about losing some because I used to be this funded guy, now I'm not oh i'm just as bad as these guys and the just the, the culture of it's yeah really poor
0: yeah well i see i would disagree with you that it's the last 10 or 15 years i think it's always been there and i think whenever there is a heavy, heavily funded culture you you end up having protective mentality and and you end up having a protective mentality from from the players coaches and and the parents which is which is never healthy it's never you know if you're if a if a 12 year old player is playing to protect their ranking That what they're doing is they're not developing their game that we know that they need to have because ultimately the sport of tennis in a game we're going to the top level now, but if you want to be top hundred in the world, your level has to be top hundred in the world. (laughs) Hundred percent. So so you have to develop your level. You know, it's no good protecting your twelve-year-old ranking or your twelve-year-old whatever it might be. You know, and and I think that once we have that protective mentality. That seems to really, really happen. And, 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 and I think, again, this is where I think you're a fascinating one because you as a coach have taken that risk on yourself and you've gone, well, actually, I'm going to pull myself out of this and I'm going to, I'm going to develop these p- couple of players. And you've talked about Emile, Emile Hud, and you've talked about Arthur Ferry, who I think is a fascinating one because I think a lot of us see Arthur now and, and a lot of people go, where did he come from? Well, I remember seeing him age nine and he, and he was the smallest yet more skillful little nine year old I've ever seen. You know, so so how how have you managed to, I guess, facilitate that journey with those guys to keep them away from maybe what is the typical sort of protective nature and environment? Well, I think that the the
1: starting point would be is that I made a lot of really bad calls with Emil when he was 13, 14, where as a coach, I got really sucked into that. I got really sucked into it. You know, my first time coaching, you know, players that are playing for GB, playing tarbs, all that kind of stuff. And I found myself getting really sucked into it into, you know, oh, I've, you know now that he's done this, I've got to get him off to his ITFs as quick as possible. I've got to get his ranking going yeah. and, and worrying about what everyone else was doing. Yeah. And then, it was about 18 months later, I started to realize it was happening. And I started to get get him playing more domestic tournaments, British tours, um, club matches at the weekends, Aegon, you know, Aegon team matches, yeah. things like that. And I just noticed such a difference in 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 the kid. I just noticed a huge yeah. difference. Um and with Arthur and this is again where i think it's so important coaches to go through levels and, and experience because a lot of the mistakes i made the first time round i tried not to make with arthur so he played a lot of french money tournaments you know when he was you know 14 13 14 he went to france played played money tournaments played british tours played super series at sutton at the weekend and we really tried not to get caught up in the whole ranking thing and it, and being in a rush you know we really just said you like tennis you enjoy playing it you want to compete and yeah, let, let's just do it as much as we can, rather than spending however much money to go play one match at Tennis Europe somewhere.
0: <laughs> and, and that's you, like, really quite sharply known your player, you know, like, yeah. because your player or, or the athlete is different day to day, and and it's quite a, it's quite acute, it's quite an acute level that you've got to there with those boys. Is that possible if you're just seeing them for two or three hours a week for a one on one lesson, which is the traditional coaching route that I think tends to happen as well?
1: I think you can. Yeah, I just think I think you just become more aware of it. I think if you're looking for it, you're more likely to see it. Um, You know, I think a big part of my coaching has been all around personal relationships and and people, you know, I've I've only done my level three at the end of the day, I've not, I've not, I've not gone on and done any more of my coaching qualifications, but I've spent a lot of my time really in, investing in trying to understand people better and the, the kind of soft skills of coaching. And I think that's, yeah, I, I think that that is ultimately the most important thing. And, and you can achieve that seeing someone two or three times a week. I, I do it at the moment with a, with a couple of young lads that I coach, yeah. um, who I coach when I'm home and I'm not traveling. You know, I, I don't see them that much, but I can kind of see the shifts in their behaviors and the, yeah. the way that they act. And, Yes, yeah, so, and, and then we change something, and then it's a conversation with the parents. Look, actually, take them to go play some you know, under-18 grade fives rather than trying to play under-16 grade twos or whatever.
0: Just take a little bit of the pressure off for a while. And, yeah, yeah, I think if you're looking for it, you can see it. And if I shift it to kind of game development, is it fair to say that sometimes British coaches can be a little bit technical obsessed?
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, was te- I was a massive... Technical obsessed coach for the first probably four or five years of my coaching.
0: Yeah,
1: you know I look back at some of the the IDPs that I did with my boss at the time, and it was all about technique. And I look yeah. back at that now, I think, wow, that, that, what a car crash! <laughs> yeah. um, and you only learn yeah. that through experience. Um, I think what I've noticed is that, and it's a, such a stereotype. I I just don't think British coaches are. Are bad. I think we're actually really good, and I think I agree, we often. Agree. And I think we've got a ton of really good coach compared to what I see in a lot of other places. I think we've got some great coaching happening in this I country. I, I think I think that that's a little bit of an old stereotype now. I, I wouldn't say it's the same anymore. I, th- I watch a lot of the the younger coaches. Well, I say younger coaches. You know, I'm not, not that old, but you know, I watch a lot of the guys that are just starting out. And yeah, it's it's, it's not it's not the same anymore. It's definitely shifting.
0: So why? Because I hear this all the time, and I agree. I agree. And I know loads of great coaches. Why do we not seem to be able to take players consistently past your 14s, your 15s and and start transitioning into being professional tennis players?
1: I think we just dwindle the numbers too quickly. I think we get so focused on such a small number of players so fast. You know, I think one of the best things that one of the best quotes I've ever seen when it comes to like talent development and stuff is as many as possible, as long as possible, as good as possible. Whereas ours seems to be as many as possible until they're 13, 14, and then just the best ones. And yeah. that's and,
0: and, and that to me is is, I think, where we where we struggle. And that's where. I mean, I, I, it, it, it's happened naturally, but if I take, you know, Soto Tennis Academy, we've naturally become an academy, which is majority, the majority is 13, 14 plus, mm-hmm. because, you know, and I find myself in lots of conversations, not just with British players, but with players that there isn't a whole lot on offer yeah for four people and of 14 plus unless unless they are heavily funded by the federations but i guess when i try and work that out and think about it i guess it does get more expensive you know as yes. as you get older and 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 then you know you need to be spending more time traveling and there needs to be you know more time you know spent on the courts no longer 1 hour a day cuts it so yep. now you're playing 4 hours a day now you need full s c program you need sports psychology support so 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 i guess the in defense of of how how federations work they're trying to provide the best the best program for a select few because it is so expensive, but I guess there needs to be a bit of a shift in terms of the whole ecosystem of tennis, that it's not just about creating top hundred tennis players. It's not the only success measure.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and, and from my side, it's not a uh, a thing on a federation because I, th- I think that there's a lot of really good people that are trying to do it, that are doing a really good job. You know, I think that there's a lot of people in, in, you know, making decisions about these things that are doing it, in, in their opinion, in, in the best interests of, of British tennis. But I just I just feel like, you know, once you're over the age of over the age of 14, it, it is really difficult now. I don't know what it's like around the rest of the country, but I know in the southeast, for example, there's a limit. And, and this is a, to do with indoor facilities. There's a limited number of indoor facilities. Those indoor indoor facilities have X number of courts. Those courts have to be dedicated to the under 14 program. So there isn't actually any court time available for
0: those older players. That that plays into it as well.
1: Those have been my thoughts on it, anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's 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 a, it's a. It, I think I just like to have the conversation on these podcasts because I like to get people thinking. Yeah, you know, and and I think, you know, coming on, it's it's nothing personal about any of it. It's just purely about just trying to provoke some thoughts you know get you know there's there's lots of amazing people and i know there's lots of people in britain that are listening to this there's lots of people in ireland in america and all of these places and and if these conversations just spark one or two little thoughts in some coaches to maybe look at something a little bit differently or maybe have a different conversation with a different coach, you know, a committee member, whatever it might be, then, then it's kind of job done in the conversations, you know? And, and, and I think yeah. that that's why I like to bring attention to it really.
1: No, I think it's, I, I think it's good. And one of the things that I would say is pretty amazing now with with the new setup that we have is that 10 to 14, you know, you could be a kid from a, from a family that don't have a lot of money and you can have an amazing program now from the age of 10 to 14. Like you really could like, like the, the fact that that's now being provided for those, those types of players is, is awesome. And it's something that wasn't available in the past. So I think that that's, that's awesome yeah. for me it's just when once they get over 14 and like you say it gets more expensive you know you yeah. start having to play more practice more the domestic competition scene is is, is dwindling fast you know you've yeah. got guys like barry falch who are trying to help it yeah. with the utr events and running their tournaments yeah. you know I, I remember as a 14 year old playing british tours and you'd go into that and you'd start in pre-qualies in a in a 64 yeah. draw and then you'd have to work your way through. Now as a 14 15 year old you're starting in the main draw sometimes. And Absolutely. I think that's I think that that's, you know, the whole tennis ecosystem. Those guys that are 14 to 18 who aren't going to be your top players necessarily, they're they're actually the guys that are going to be your next generation of coaches, your next generation of officials, your next generation of yes. tournament organizers. You know, th- mm-hmm. th- those people are so important to to our game long term. And if we don't try and help them and provide something for them then then I think it's it's just it's bad for British tennis in general.
0: <laughs> I've got a couple of quick questions on Arthur. Yeah, and I'm going to get him on the podcast hopefully in the next in the next two three weeks, and because he does fascinate me, I think he's 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 exciting. You know, he's he's different. Um, how good is he? Yeah, he's good. He's good. He Plays good tennis. How good, good can tennis. he be? How good can he be?
1: I think as good as he wants to be, really. I think he can be as good as he wants to be. It will all depend on, yeah, what he does, what he puts in, the decisions that he makes. You know, the, the ball has always been very much in his court with everything. You know, the, the way that we operate as, as a team around him is is almost we advise him, and then it's on then it's on him to make his decisions about what he wants to do. Um, mm. You know, we've never we've never really forced stuff with him. We've never said, look, you have got to do this, this, and this. It's it's all up to him, really. Yeah, he's he's exciting. He plays. He plays a different brand of tennis. He's great fun to watch. Um, yep. He absolutely loves playing the sport. You know, you get out there and you put him in a competitive environment. He he really enjoys it. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's just a good kid, really.
0: Great, great kid. And at what age did you start this independence?
1: Uh, not from the very start, because you know he 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 was in full time education from the age of ten to sixteen, like like most yep. normal most normal kids. So. Yep things were kind of dictated to a little bit for him uh, in terms yeah. of when he could and couldn't play, but probably since he left school, his GCSE year, since he left GCSEs.
0: And if you were to do that journey again, not necessarily specifically Arthur, mm-hmm. but, but with a, because uh, nine years is a long time with a player. And I, and I think it's, it's a great, it's great to have that, you know, for you as an experience and you yeah. know, to have someone talking about that, that's taken this kid from, you know, basically nine years old, all the way through to being someone who's basically top 10 of the world juniors, you know, as a very exciting prospect. Uh,
1: just on that, I think it's just really important to note on that. Like, so with Arthur, it's yes, yeah, seven years now, but there's been a hell of a lot of people that have been involved in that. Like I'm just yeah. the one who, who has been a bit of a constant, like I, I've always yeah. been there, but, you know, he's had some awesome coaches, you know, Alison Taylor yeah. at Westside, who started him off and still coached him for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Benoit, the other coach who who mostly works with him now and travels with him more than I do. Alex Lazicky at the LTA, who helps with him. You know, he, he's had awesome people working with yeah. him throughout. And his mum's an ex-player. His mum was a very, very good tennis player. So he's always gone off, seen other people, you know, found out what he, yeah. you know, what he likes, takes good things from places and puts it together himself, really.
0: And would you recommend that? So that, I guess that was my question. It's like, you know, with you being the constant throughout that journey, as you look at it and you look at a, a development plan for a talented nine-year-old who is is eventually be, to become a professional tennis player, what are some of the lessons you've learned, some of the challenges that you've had to overcome, and maybe some of the things you might have done different?
1: I think. First one is just be super open, be really open as a coach to working with other people. Um, you know, I think parents can genuinely sense it when you when you have the kid's best interests at heart. Yeah,
0: they can, I think
1: yeah. don't be afraid of other people being involved. I think if I when I was 22, 23, I definitely would have had that mentality. But, you know, I, it, it's it shifted for me a lot. And now I'm more than happy for other people to give me their thoughts and, you know, tell the player. Ultimately, the, the player decides every – ultimately, the player decides – it's I think as coaches, we like to think that we're calling the shots yep. and we're doing all this. We're really not the player decides Yeah. the player decides we're, we're just there to advise them and give them our, our thoughts and be as honest as we can.
0: Okay. So lose yeah. your ego. Lose your ego <laughs> is the first thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Lose your ego. Uh, I think listen to, the, I think communicate with the parents and listen to the parents a lot. I think your parents are your your ally. I think they are massively. Um yep. And you can learn a lot about the kids via their parents. I know. I know know some coaches are going to hate me for saying that, but you know, I think coaches can often be almost afraid of parents a little bit, or almost think that they they don't have their their kids' best interests at heart. That they they really do, and I think the more we communicate
0: with them and and speak to them about stuff, the the better. Um, The the second that you go, you 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 get in that defensive mode, and we've all been there as coaches. Where you avoid the com, you avoid the eye contact as you're walking off the court, or yeah. you pretend that you've got a incoming phone call, or you know, you know we've all we've all had that moment. It's actually yeah. the time that that whole partnership is over, yeah, b- because yeah. everyone has to be on board. Everyone has to be on board for it to work. And I would say that at all levels, even, you know, to help somebody to become a a better player to play for the first team at the school, you yes. know, you're going to get a lot more, you know, bang for your buck if you've got the parents on board and everyone's sending the same consistent message. Yeah. You know, but yeah. I think as coaches, we can be guilty of hiding from that.
1: Yeah. And I guess the, the, the only other thing for me would be, don't be afraid to let the kids really screw up, give, give them some responsibility. And, you know, I I think sometimes, especially when you're working with someone who maybe has good potential or you think they can achieve a lot, there's almost like this fear of, there's almost this fear of of them screwing up and that meaning that it's all over for them. You know, I'd say just, you know, give the kids responsibility and, you know, and if they screw up for a while, they screw up for a while. That's, that's fine. They'll, They'll learn from it. Ultimately, if they're good, they're good, and good players tend to learn. Tend to learn.
0: Hey, you must be older than thirty years old, Craig. Hey, there's way (laughs) there's way too much wisdom in there, huh? (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Something like that. (laughs) Wisdom or bullshit? I'm not sure which one it is. I'll work it out by the end of the podcast.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sniff it out. (laughs) Sniff (laughs) it out.
0: And in terms of like working with. And I've I have this challenge, so and I've had this challenge for many years. So please, please give me some advice. How how do you manage to the balance of coaching? I mean, like I say, Alexa Grand Slam finalist last year offers in the you know top ten of the world juniors you know you've got Lily who's wins every British tour that I've ever seen I don't think <laughs> I've ever not seen her win a British <laughs> tour you know and then running the, running this program in Sutton how do you how do you keep that balance and keep everyone happy and you know keep the keep the jobs going effectively
1: I think it, it it's communication and I think expectations for me that that's the big part the the reality is that you know, with Alexa, even, even being a grand slam, you know, finalist f- women's doubles uh, until you are consistently in the top 25, 30, you're not making a ton of money. She can't afford to have me on the road with her full time. Yeah. Um, so that, 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 the first bit is the expectations. I know that she can't have me on the road full time. She knows that. So I do the best that I can with the weeks that I've got. Same with, same with Lily, you know, she has a budget that she has to work to for her program. So we, we maximize that as much as we can. So I think it's just, it's just being very clear on, on, on what's expected and what you can and can't do. I used to really overpromise stuff and I'd find myself really trying to do it, but just not being able to, you know, running out of time or whatever. And I've tried more and more, you know, since I started working across more players to kind of almost underpromise and over deliver on stuff. And that's kind of what I've, I've tried to do more.
0: Good advice, but it goes back to those honest conversations again, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, you know, having that that honest conversation, and I always think when there's a gap between reality and expectation, that's when the real niggles come in any relationship. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, like my wife knows if Newcastle United play, I watch it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> she'll probably say at the end of this podcast, that's not true. I'm now a puppy dog that never, never watches Newcastle United anymore. But that was once upon a time, the reality, you know, but that's that's all, that's all changed very fast. And, and what I'd like to like to finish with is your best experiences. You know, you've, you know, you've shared your development pathways and, you know, there's been lots of, lots of great things, but what, what are your best experiences as a coach?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, Roland Garros finals definitely up there. Um, it's not bad, is it? No, but it, but in a weird in a weird experience because it just didn't feel like it. Yeah, we were no just sense. kind of we were just, but, but not even that. In in terms of the way that we just went about things, it was just yeah. it was just normal. You know, we were, we were just doing the stuff that we do each day, playing card, playing cards, playing games. Um, yeah, just doing what we do at any other event. Really, it was yeah, it was very normal. When they won um,
0: the semi-finals, was there, was there a moment?
1: Yeah, there was. It, it was, there, was a, there was like, a, you know, the hairs on my arm really pricked up in that moment. Um, yeah. yeah. And that was pretty big. It was actually that match and third round match against Strickover and Sue. Those were the two moments where, yeah, I, 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 it was really special. Really, really special.
0: That was that was pretty awesome. Um and I know just quickly, Craig, on that, just on that though, you you said that the fans didn't necessarily make a difference. Is that true? It just feels as if if that's a packed stadium, that is a different experience, probably for the girls, but also I would imagine for yourself than sitting in an empty stadium.
1: It, It definitely would have been a different experience. That's that is for sure. It would have been a different experience. But for me, it didn't change the yep. the feeling or the importance of the experience. Cause it was, you know, there was nothing we could do about it. You know, there, there's no fans. Yeah. So not going to worry about it. It, yeah. it just is what it is. Um so hitting on Chatterer actually uh was it was a big moment for me because I, I love French Open. It was the first one of the first events that I ever went to as a kid I visited when I was yeah. 14 and yeah, fell in love with the place. So yeah, that was pretty special.
0: And what's your ambitions as a coach?
1: Great question. Um, in all honesty, I, I try not to think too far ahead. If you were to ask my wife and she, she hates me for this. I I really don't think more than probably six to nine months in advance on most stuff with my work and my job. You know, I just, I just, I just try to stay stay in the moment with each of the jobs that I'm doing and try to help those players as much as I can. And it will take me where it takes me. You know, I've got a little boy now, so, so traveling gets tougher, but, uh, I've been lucky to have some people speak to me about it and give me some good advice on it. Like Colin Beecher
0: gave me some good advice. Matt Little. Um, Don't take Colin Beecher's advice. I know. It, I, was, I, I, I mean, was on the say that. on the podcast. I mean, me and Anne, me and Anne were talking yeah. about that. Like, have you ever heard advice like it? When you have a young kid, that's the time to travel. Like, it was like, <laughs> uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's unbelievable how he got he got away yeah. with that for so long.
1: Yeah, but I, I think it's, it's more just some of the nuances in terms of, you know, understanding how to communicate it with your partner, um, you know, knowing, you know, how long you can be on the road for and it be acceptable. You know, I think there's like, like for example, I didn't go down to Australia f- for that reason that it was just going to be too long of a trip, you know, be it being away six weeks in a row would have just been too long. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, I try not to think too far ahead, to yeah. be honest, Dan, I just... I, I might be back, you know, coaching Tots again in two years and I'm really enjoying it and loving it. I, I don't know. I'll just, I'll take it as it comes and just keep trying really hard to do a good job and see what happens.
0: Well, you're doing a great job, mate. An absolutely fantastic job. I've I've seen that for years. I missed the boat. I missed the boat a few years ago and I, I should have got you to <laughs> the academy if I if I possibly could a few years ago because I always saw it. I always saw it in you. And I know I said it was my last question, but it's not because... I've asked every coach that's come on about the use of, of data, data analysis. You know, what we've tended to see is the old farts think that it's pointless and they've got a magic eye and their yeah. magic eye is better than anything. Um, and I guess you as a younger coach, I would imagine it's a bit more in your world. But what, what, what is your take on it and, and, and how it's affecting the game positively or negatively? I mean, I,
1: I use it. I use data, but I very much use it based around what either we're working on or what I see. I think we've got to a stage with things now where it's getting a bit ridiculous and some of the data doesn't really, you know, it, you're not learning much from it. It's just a bunch of numbers in front of you, but it looks really impressive. You know, it, it looks really impressive that someone's pulled it up on a spreadsheet and, and great, but I use it and I tend to use it a lot in, with the doubles girls that I work with in terms of patterns and just looking at, okay, you know, maybe the player struggles taking the forehand return line, right? Okay, we're going to play a lot of I formation against them. You know, we're going to swing it out wide, make them take the ball line. You know, different situations like that. that that's how I use the data. Um, but I try not to be obsessed with it because I think ultimately when you're giving players advice or when you're trying to guide them, if you just go purely on the numbers and you don't believe in it yourself, you can come unstuck pretty quickly and you've got to believe in, you've got to believe in it, I think. And I I see it a lot now with people just, just quoting numbers. And the reality is anybody can do that. Anybody can show a player a bunch of numbers on an iPad. It's not that difficult, but how you explain that to them and how you sell that to them and how you build that into a game plan and a strategy is ultimately the best way to use it. I think anyway.
0: And how to build the relationship before that so that their minds are open when you are selling it to them, you know, which, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is actually the, the the bigger picture that I've taken from, from yourself, you know, from Tom Hill, you know, from Alex Ward, you know, some of the younger coaches that I've spoken to over the last couple of weeks, you know, it's very clear to see the impact that can be made from, from that side. And I guess my thought process on that, we talk about tennis player, wanting them to be a performer first and and bring the mental skills and the physical skills. And then we talk about the tennis player on the tactical and technical. Well, I think it's actually, it's the same with a coach. We have to have the ability to be the performer and the connector to build those relationships before we can then start to deliver the actual tennis information, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I I've actually got a bit of a car crash story, a uh, story on that for, from US Open last summer. Um, I was with the with the girls at uh, Cincinnati in US, and uh, Alexa was just starting with a new partner, and we kind of went into this kind of new partnership, and I was starting to work with Des, the other player, a bit more, and. I completely balls it up the first two weeks. I, I I didn't do a good enough job of getting to know her and how she operates and what she, what she needs to work best. She came in with the same mentality of, oh, I want to work really, really hard and hit loads of balls and all of this stuff. And it was actually after they had lost, they, they only won one match in, in that two of, in those two events. And we sat down at the end of it and we said, wow, that was a car crash. I said to her, Look, I, I did not take long enough to, to get to know you, figure you out, know how you operate best. And, and then from there it kind of, went really well but (laughs) i think if that was one bit of advice i could say to anyone is really
0: get to know someone before you stick your oar in yeah i I think
1: that's probably the the big bit
0: and if you don't be man enough be vulnerable enough yeah to hold your hands up and 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 again that would be a massive message as well and what what you've done there the vulnerability that you've shown in that conversation You know, which can't have been an easy conversation to have when you feel that you've messed up. You know how many people just sweep the mess up under the carpet, and that no one's realised, and then so it goes back. It goes back to the honest conversations again.
1: Yeah, and I I don't know if the girls would agree with this, but for me, that's actually where it started—the run for the French Open was. They weren't getting on that great on the court, not in terms of friends wise, but they weren't communicating great. There was something in the way. And it was probably me, actually, when I thought about it back at that time. Uh, So the three of us all sat down and originally they weren't going to go and play Istanbul the week after US. And we all sat down. We said, wow, we've, we've all kind of screwed up here. We need to we need to rectify this. And they went and signed in on site at Istanbul, got in, won the event, and then that kind of got the ball
0: rolling. Love that story. They do. I love it. I love that story. There's so much to be taken from it, and and another another gem, Vila. Um, the quick fire round. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, You've heard. I've tried to. I've had to give a couple of different questions because I know that you know most of the questions coming. So, um, first question actually is who who used to win when you were younger? You or Joe Dixon?
1: Definitely me. With with double-handed both sides. I'm not
0: letting that happen. So then my second question. Is Joe Dixon or Fabrice Santuro? <laughs> mm, definitely, uh, definitely Fabrice, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Mini tennis or Grand Slam? Grand Slam. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. Serve or return? Return. Singles or doubles? Doubles. British or foreign? That question.
1: Um, mm, mm. British with a foreign influence. How about that one? Pop out. What's your, <laughs>
0: What's your favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. Not, you said the French Open. That's where I first fell in
1: love with tennis. But Wimbledon, okay. as a
0: as a Brit, Wimbledon, it's yeah. pretty amazing. Should there be five sets or three sets in male Grand Slams? Five. Female Grand Slams, five sets or three?
1: Five. What do you reckon? L- love to see it. Love to see it.
0: It would be good. I think it be? would
1: be uh, it'd be a game changer to see some of the some of the players. Uh, I think, actually, Tom Hill, I think we well, had Tom Hill on here the other day. I mean, Sakari over five sets. I'd love
0: <laughs> to see that. I mean. No one's beaten Yeah. That. <laughs> Tough. They did try it a few years ago. that was quite a few years ago, and okay. it was like Steffi. I remember like Steffi Graf, but there was a lot of like six ones, two six, six one, one six, six one type of type of results. But I guess they also haven't. If they're given the time, then I'm sure they'll all condition themselves ready for it. You know, at that I, time, I think they, the games changed.
1: I think the games changed a lot probably since then as well. Now, yeah, I a think lot, yeah. I think it, serving serving wise, the games changed a lot on the women's
0: side. So I think it would be yeah. A lot more interesting. They're gonna to have to get some more indoor courts at slams if that happens, though. Because <laughs> yeah, you're right. There. That schedule is gonna stretch, you know, long, long into the night. Uh, should there be an injury timeout or not? Gone backwards and forwards on this one in my head. Uh no.
1: What's one rule change you would have in tennis? No sit down for the first five games.
0: People at Wimbledon wouldn't be happy with that either. After I, think, the, the, the
1: <laughs> I think the story takes too long to develop in tennis. The story of a match just takes too long to develop. And, and ultimately people watch sport for a story or for moments. And I think those first, yeah, those first five games, it just takes too long.
0: Or should they just play sets to four? I
1: don't know. I don't know. When I watch the, the next gen thing, I, I, I struggle to get into it. I struggle to get into it. I, I, there's nothing better than seeing, I don't know, Six all, six all first set or five all first set. I don't know why it feels different, but six all feels different to four all tiebreak. I, I don't know why. Yeah,
0: but it Just does. First. But Eleanor Preston, she said something that I thought was really inter- interesting. She said she's PR and media and been around the sport for many, many years in, as a broadcaster, as a journalist, as an agent. And she said, you have to think about the sport through the eyes of those that aren't as passionate as us. Yeah. So as me and you sit here and could speak for hours about every nuance of the sport at all levels, you know, we could probably have a, a full podcast on a mini tennis player's forehand grip. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Whereas actually the sport itself and and for the for the whole kind of Size of the sport and the industry itself, you know, how do we continue getting new people into the sport? And and, and all I would challenge on your last answer there, I'm with you, four all doesn't seem right. However, maybe the less passionate ones that were trying to get into the sport might get to that story a little bit sooner.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd agree with you on that. And I think if I was looking at it as someone who's not a tennis head, then. I'd want to see a shorter format. You know, I think cricket, you know, I I, I sat and watched a, uh, a T10 match, I think they're called. It's 10 overs. It's great. It's just guys just bashing the hell out of the ball. It's awesome. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's, it's good to watch. It
0: only takes an hour and a half. It's perfect. Yeah. But somebody um, like Jeffrey Boycott, that must be like a dagger to the heart. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Because, yeah. It is because, like, we know, I guess our passion for tennis, we know all about, you know, everything the detail that goes into a five set match the the ebbs the flows the build up the you know the way that you take your breaks the way that you play the match yeah you know and somebody like a jeffrey boycott who would build these 100 over a couple of days and all of a sudden he sees these people just using this like massive cricket bat and just smacking it out of henley yeah yeah and some of these cricketers will be turning in their grave i would imagine to that
1: yeah i think you're right there
0: and who should our next guest be
1: uh, I want to try and get Arthur on I think Arthur would be a good listen For some of the junior players out there Listen to his story and his journey um, I think he'd be a great one mm. I was trying to think outside the box For this one actually Dan, And I don't know if you know Steve Tiddy From Sutton Tennis and Squash Club I, I don't do. know if you've ever come across him I do know I mean, Steve If
0: every club had a Steve Tiddy Tennis would be in incredible shape Let's get Steve on I know Steve. I know Steve really quite well actually yeah. So I don't have his number, so I might need you to connect us. But I think him coming from that passion from a club side and yeah. getting club tennis going, I think will be a great story for people to hear. So let, let's make it happen. Sounds good, Dan. Craig, honestly, I, I've given you a couple sure of compliments throughout this, but I, I mean them. I mean them. You know, I I think in, in the world that we work, the tennis world, the tennis industry, we have a pretty good feeling and we have a pretty good vibe over what other people are doing you know, and certainly I, I admire what you've been doing and been doing for a long time, you know, and I think if we had more of you in our sport, it, it would also be a much better place. So, so well done to you. Keep doing your thing, you know, have a fantastic 2021 and hopefully we'll see you out at the Academy sometime soon as well.
1: Thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate
0: those kind words. Really nice. Cheers. Top man, Craig. Cheers. Thanks. Enjoyed it. A big thank you to Craig. For coming on the show, as as I mentioned at the start of the show, he was sat in his car, and at first uh, I felt a little bit sorry for him. Then I realised he was he was avoiding having a screaming baby in the background, which is which is something we've had a lot of experience on, Vicky.
2: We've not always succeeded with that actually. I think there's been one or two yelps in the background that have made it onto some episodes over the past year. But yeah, I love listening to Craig's story, actually. He's got quite a wise head on young shoulders, is not
0: he? Yeah, and I think that the big word that came through for me is is humility. You know, he very much downplays what he's doing, but, but the reality is he, he has made his way through all of the different levels of the sport. And I think for young coaches listening, the reason that Craig has had so much success is actually because of that. You know, he almost hasn't necessarily strived for that he hasn't you know even there was one thing he started talking about halfway through he said I know that I might be coaching mini tennis in 12 or 18 months and he's very comfortable with that you know he's somebody who just seems to like people and like to help people and
2: love the sport
0: and, and completely love the sport, you know. I know he's he's very good friends actually with Joe Dixon, who was obviously uh, a big a big friend of ours, and I know they grew up together. So whoever was the coach with those boys in the Hampshire area, it, they've definitely injected this love and passion for the sport that is carrying them through very much so.
2: And you both talked about having honest conversations quite a lot throughout that. Um, the one thing I really liked was that he's not afraid to work with other coaches. He's not afraid to have input from other coaches about his players and work as a team. That There's no ego there, which w- we can see quite often.
0: Yeah, no, again, and, and I think that's, that's that's again, the security in, in knowing that you're doing a, a decent job, you know, and I think because he has a tolerance for for working at all levels. It's not as if he's saying I I have this job and I desperately have to have it It's then just going, Okay, well what is my role in this? And you know, quite often our role as tennis coaches is not to necessarily be seen or heard. You know, it's not the it's not the Craig Veal show. It's not the Dan Keenan show. He's
2: very aware that it's not about him, it's about the player.
0: It is the Nick Boloteri show. (laughs) you know yeah. and, and and i think you know that's where you know it is it is very different you know i i really did like the way that he's talked about that i i really and i know i've mentioned it but i love i'd love how strongly he talked about the importance of going through the steps of of being a coach that was also came up in conversation with louis kaye a couple of weeks ago you know, and just having that different context and understanding how to be a teacher, understanding how to be a coach, understanding how to train somebody. You know, and, and I think, you know, the, the world's his oyster it really is because Craig Veal is someone that I think a lot of people would like to have in their corner.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And he talked um, quite a lot about keeping players in the sport, um, not losing them at that 13, 14 year old age.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's again, it goes back to this word humility. You know, he's Craig was in Dubai this weekend, you know, and he's there watching his player win the biggest event you can win outside of a Grand Slam. Yet the next day he'll be flying back to to help run a program that is keeping these 14 15 16 year olds in, in the sport and you know the more the more people that we have like that the the better that this sport will be and the more people will have involved and i absolutely love the thing that he said to to have as many as possible for as long as possible to be as good as possible you know as a as a philosophy for all of us to take away from that If we live and breathe that as tennis coaches, tennis clubs, tennis academies, nobody is any more important than another. It's just about everybody doing their very, very best to provide opportunity. Some people will happen to go on a bit further in the game. And I just think it's a a really lovely message.
2: Yeah, it really was. And last week we had our Borna a episode and we had a bonus episode as well with John Cavill. And this week we've got another bonus episode for you.
0: We do, but I, I can't let that go without pulling you up on, on how oh you've said. No!
2: I can't. I've done it again! <laughs> Chorich. Borna Chorich. Borna
0: Chorich. Borna Choric. I will have his agent onto us <laughs> once again.
2: We need to apologize again. I'm
0: sorry. Yeah, so yeah, Borna Choric and, and yeah, this week we've we've had the opportunity to to speak to to Holger Rune, who is, you know, if you haven't heard of Holger yet, you will be soon. He's the world junior number one, has been for, for two or three years now, and Had a breakthrough last week, qualifying, making the quarterfinals of his first ATP event. He has a bright future ahead. That conversation is, and I'm telling you, I have never met an individual with so much confidence and Uh, self-belief. It's a really good one. It's not a long episode, but it's a one that you absolutely have to tune into. And you also mentioned the episode with John, with John Cavill. If you haven't listened, please do. It, again, it's a very short episode, but John's doing great things, bringing lots to the sport, You know, getting into schools, providing opportunity, and also has got a great fundraiser going right now for Red Nose Day. You know, check out our Instagram and Facebook pages where you can see a bit more information how you can get involved. I think it's really important we continue giving back to this beautiful sport But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables.